Hello everyone, welcome to The Woodland. Uh, lovely to see you all. I'm Andre from Mental Elf and this is our first ever Elf Nuggets show. And so for the next half hour, we are going to be talking about the latest reliable mental health research that you can use in your practice. So this show is for mental health practitioners. I'm sure lots of other people will watch it too, but we're really trying to target people who work at the front line of mental health practice to help them use the latest research in their practice. And so each month, what we're going to do with our lovely panel is highlight three new pieces of mental health research that we think is relevant to mental health practice. And we can be covering that later on. We know that there's a 15 year gap between research and practice in mental health. And so this Elf Nugget show is going to help you close that gap. It's going to provide you better evidence based care for your patients using evidence. And this month, we're going to be discussing three new topics. We're going to be talking about antidepressants in young people with anxiety and depression. We're going to be talking about autism and how a delayed diagnosis or misdiagnosis can affect people. And we're going to be talking about what young people who self-harm think of the care and support that they get in primary care. So you check out the links and the resources on the Mental Health event page for this video. We're going to list everything we mentioned in the show and you can click through and find more detail if you want. Okay, so let's crack on. I'm going to introduce you first of all to our Elf Nuggets panel. And our first panelist is Carrie Ann Black. Uh, Carrie Ann is a mental health nurse from Yorkshire originally. Uh, she's the CAMS Research and Implementation Nurse Lead in South London. And her job is all about building research capacity and capability across mental health, across the nursing workforce. So, as you can see, a perfect person to have on this show. Thanks for joining us, Carrie-Anne. Emmeline Lagunas Cordoba. Hi, Emmeline. She is a psychiatrist originally from Mexico, where she trained in general adult psychiatry and psychotherapy. And she moved to the UK in 2013 to do a PhD in mental health stigma at King's College in London. And she now works in the crisis team in North London. So we've got a mental health nurse and we've got a psychiatrist so far. And of course, we need a clinical psychologist as well. And our clinical psychologist is Becca Reed. Hi, Becca. She is originally from Leicester. She's just completed her clinical psychology doctorate and she's now working in a recovery and support team in Richmond. So I want you to get to know our panelists and I'm gonna ask them each in turn, first of all, just to give us an example of how they've used mental health research to make a positive difference in their practice. So Carrie-Anne, do you want to go first? Yeah, and, and just to say it's really great to be here. Um, it's such a fantastic opportunity to kind of pause and just be present and engage in some interesting conversation about topics that we're all really passionate about. And it's a great chance to learn from others. So I'm really excited for this first show. Um, one example that I can give, I guess mental health research makes a difference to my practice every day because of the nature of the job I do. Um, it's about making a, a difference to the communities we serve. And I can't do that without applying high quality evidence. So just a very recent example, um, I had the pleasure of listening to Rebecca Carney uh, present a, a journal club on her work that looks at physical health of young people receiving inpatient mental health care. Um, and her meta review looked at clinical and behavioural uh, 
cardiometabolic risk factors, bit of a mouthful, um, uh, for, for that group of young people. And it was just really interesting because what the synth- synthesis showed was that um, this population exhibits signs of poor physical health, even at an early stage of their inpatient admission. Uh, and they show early signs of metabolic risk, um, such as um, elevated blood and cholesterol levels and hypertension. Um, and I just found this really interesting because it's not something we usually associate kind of with young people. So what we are doing now um, in our inpatient units of presented that um, that study to my head of nursing and to our lead matron for physical health care and now we're looking at what changes we can make and whatever evidence-based interventions we could implement so that we can intervene early regarding the physical health needs of the young people on those inpatient units. The paper I'm talking about I suppose it's a bit more theoretical um, in a way it is a review that reviewed lots of different research but it was by Davidson and colleagues um, it's a few years old now so it was written in 2010 Um, And it was all about kind of applying the classic stages of change model to recovery in mental illness. Um, So I think a lot of people are quite familiar now with the original stages of change model by Prochaska and Di Clemente, which was made in the 1980s. But it's it's basically developed, usually thinking around health behaviours and things like addictions and describes six stages ranging from pre-contemplation, where you don't feel that there is a problem at present to change to kind of taking action to make real sustained health changes um, and then kind of continuing to make changes. And this paper, yeah, applied this more specifically to people with mental health difficulties. And for me um, and my clinical practice, what that enabled, it provided an opportunity to reflect as a team, really, we talked about the stages of change model in our client group, which at that time was in an early intervention in psychosis team, um, and thought about, you know, clients that we were feeling stuck with, that we felt were maybe disengaged from the work that we were doing, that we found ourselves kind of wanting to keep pushing and trying to engage them, um, and not always that not always being successful. Um, and I think it helped us to think and it helped me clinically to think about how we can often assume that people are in this action stage. They're ready to go. They they're really ready to make changes when there might be all sorts of things going on in their life um, that are barriers towards that. Or they may not have been the one who wanted this referral to be made. Um, There may be kind of other pressures at play. And I think my tendency when I feel some resistance in therapy is to to give more and more. Um, I want to put more into the work. I want to give more strategies, ideas. Um, And actually, this made me think about how sometimes I need to rein back a bit a bit, think about that resistance, think with the client about that resistance. Um, Is engaging with this therapy actually in line with their values and their own goals and motivations? Um, Are there any disadvantages to engaging with it? Are there other things going on in their lives that make this difficult? And do we need to kind of, you know, rein the work back a little bit, make it more kind of concrete or simple um, and just go back to basics a little bit? So it was a helpful team reflection and also helpful for me clinically um, to read that paper. How do I use research in my everyday practice? Well, I do use research quite often, mainly when prescribing medication. For example, the other day I saw this lady uh, who had a diagnosis of bipolar depression and who came as she was struggling with lots of depressing symptoms and wanted to 
to change, to have her medication review and potentially change her medication. She was taking Lamotrigine, uh, which apparently she has been taking for quite a while, and she was feeling, you know, that it was not helping and she was struggling with some side effects. Um, although I see patients with any kind of diagnosis in, in my everyday practice, in the crisis team, I'm not tend to see patients with bipolar uh, depression wanting to you know have the medication change most of the times the patients that we see is just increase uh, the dose of the already or reduced doses etc but in this case you know she, she was really keen on changing it um, I thought of going through the um, although I know that they could change potentially to lithium or, or lansapine and fluoxetine um, before advising to, to to make it that change I wanted to go to the uh, to check what was the current evidence, you know, what are the best options and the best treatment. I did give a quick look to the NICE guidelines and see, you know, some options, um, but because I know that sometimes the evidence, you know, there might be a new uh, treatment or maybe a new, you know, combination or something very specific for her symptoms or for her age, or I, uh, and sometimes these new publications or new uh, pieces of, of research can take a while to be included in the in, in our current guidelines. I wanted to quickly go and, and give a look to, to what was there. So I, I looked for meta-analysis. I was able to find a very, very um, interesting meta-analysis by Taylor Adol, published at the Acta Psychiatrica Scandinava. Um, it was a very, very good meta-analysis. Uh, it was from 2014, uh, so it was not, not something recent, but I was able to see at least how it was um, uh, included in this in this paper was, you know, um, or the findings of, from, uh, in this paper were similar to what was advised on the, on the current guidelines, and I was able to give my patient an option, in this case of catalpin, to say, okay, you know, because the patient was also struggling with um, uh, Increased weight, that she was, you know, worried about this. Or I thought, oh, last of it might not be the best option. But I was able to say, okay, get up in it. No, it's a good option. I, it's a medication I use quite often. I felt quite confident of using it, and and I felt also confident to explain. You know, I already checked the guidelines. I already checked the evidence, and I think that might be a, a very good option for, for you. And I think she ended up, you know, um, going for this. <laughs> So the next part of our show is called The World Wide Woodland. Um, I know a lot of you um, are very excited whenever we do woodland puns at the Mental Elf and the National Elf Service, so we couldn't leave it out. Um, and what we're going to do in this section is really just talk about some interesting news that's happened, something that relates to people living with mental illness. Um, and so I've asked each of our panel to think of a, a recent news story, something that's happened over the last few days or weeks, and just to highlight it for us. So Emily, you've got a, a news story all about um, the pandemic and psychosis. Tell us more. I'd like to talk about the recent article published in The Guardian in where it was mentioned that the cases of, of psychosis have increased up to 29% over the last two years. And I wanted to talk about this because I think it's, it's very important to recognize two things. So the first thing is how how big it has been the impact of, of COVID and the lockdown and the uncertainty that we have been living on, on people's mental health. Um, so, because, you know, what it, what it was described in this, in, this, um, uh, in this newspaper is exactly what we have seen in, in our crisis team. We definitely have, in, uh, have seen an increase of, of people referred to our team who are very, very unwell, you know, with very, very psychotic, very manic, or with very, you know, uh, disturbing symptoms who and these were people that 
you know, they didn't have any previous diagnosis of mental health problems, so they had never been in contact with mental health services, and we couldn't identify any specific trigger other than the pandemic, the lockdown, and, you know, the whole situation that we have been living. So I think, and it has not only been, you know, psychosis for these very people, also the, the, the amount of patients refer to us with depression, anxiety, even post-traumatic stress disorder has definitely increased. So, very, you know, I'm happy to see that this is, you know, taking attention from from the newspapers and the journalists. But another reason why I think it's important is because I think it highlights the needs of putting more money into mental health services. I mean, even before pandemic, we were struggling to um, provide, you know, enough um, support to those who struggle with mental health problems. You know, there's a lack of uh, of staff, there's a lack of, of of enough services to meet the demands, and you know, this increase of, of cases definitely, you know, is putting more pressure on, on, on mental health services. Thank you. Okay, so Becca, your example is looking at um, IPS, individual placement and support, which is something that there's a really good evidence base for. Um, yeah, what did you want to tell us about this? Yeah, so I was just, I was grabbed by a news story, really. I think it was in BBC News and also in The Independent, um, talking about individual placement support, which to be honest is something that's quite new to me because I've not worked in services until now that have had an employment specialist in. Um, But as you say, it's this evidence-based programme that aims to help people with mental health difficulties um, find and retain employment. Um, We know that kind of around 70 to 90% of people with serious mental health difficulties are unemployed. Um, And we know that, you know, a large proportion of those would like to be seeking employment if they had the support available to them to help them with that. And we know that also employment for many people can be associated with, you know, positive well-being, um, social inclusion, feelings of self-worth. So, you know, it's really important that people are supported where they want to be seeking employment to do that. Um, And I think what what these news articles were talking about is that this has started to be rolled out much more in the NHS. Um, I think it's taken off more in other countries initially, but now we are seeing it more and more in NHS services. Um, And it's employment specialists who are really embedded into clinical teams to make sure that a person does have individualised access to support, thinking about things like benefits, um, the financial situation they'd be in seeking employment, um, thinking about their own motivations and goals, thinking about how they talk about mental health difficulties with employers and colleagues. And also that employment specialist with permission can work with the employers to help them create an environment that is supportive and facilitative. So um, what this the news articles were basically talking about is that the five year forward view in 2019 was kind of aiming to increase this by, I think, um, increasing access by about 20,000. But actually, they are falling a bit below those targets, um, which is likely due to the pandemic interfering with that. But they do have these targets to really increase that. So um, they did support 4,000 people into employment last year. Um, and they're aiming to increase referrals to 55,000 by 2023. So it's obviously quite high on their priority list. Um, and yeah, I just think it's really important that these um, employment specialists are really integrated into teams involved in care planning. And I think that's really helped us with kind of thinking about providing someone with a holistic package of care and, and thinking about their you know levels of social inclusion and um, kind of reclaiming aspects of life, you know, following 
mental health difficulties. So it's just whilst there has been obviously delays in rolling this out, it's nice to hear that there are these ambitious targets going forward. Carrie-Anne, tell us your example. This is a recent global report from the Wellcome Trust looking at mental health. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, it's only was published this week and it's I think it's the world's largest survey on how people consider and cope with anxiety and depression. And it explores um, the perceived roles that science has to play in finding um, solutions to these challenges. Um, and I think there's always you know, a caveat with limitations of surveys of this nature. But I was really struck when I was reading the uh, news story that they were saying that 92% of people said mental health is as important as physical health for overall well-being. And actually, almost half of those people thought it was more important, uh, uh, which, is, you know, is it, fantastic. Um, and it'd be really interesting to compare that to kind of uh, previous years. But I was reading that and then the next bit I read was about the role that science has to play in terms of alleviating mental health issues um, and how that's actually not clear to the global population. Um, And it was about a third of people that thought science could help a lot with treatment of anxiety and depression. But if you compared that to those about half, around 50%, thought it could help with uh, science can help with infectious diseases or cancer. So there's quite a difference there. And I just got me thinking, I was just really curious about the disconnect between the level of importance that people are now quite rightly placing on their mental health um, and the disconnect between that and the lack of confidence, possibly, uh, that, you know, globally we have that the role that science has to play in finding solutions. And I was just really curious. It it just caught my interest because I was wondering, well, what's that about? And are we clearly communicating the role that research and evidence has to play regarding mental health? Um, is that an issue there? And, and yeah, just wondering why people think science is more helpful for physical ill health rather than mental ill health. So, yeah, I thought it was a really interesting results from that survey. Let's show some examples now of science making a difference in mental health, um, because we've got three really brilliant examples, three pieces of research that have been blogged about on the mental health over the last few weeks. Each of you is going to take one of these. You're going to talk about why you think this is important and how it's actually going to impact on clinical practice, uh, your clinical practice and maybe other people's. So, Emily, you've chosen quite a controversial topic Uh, antidepressants in young people and a systematic review that was published actually it was part of that welcome project that um, Carrie-Anne has just mentioned there this is one of the active ingredients reviews that was commissioned last year Susanna Murphy et al from Oxford Um, and it was a blog that was written by Mark Horowitz and Joanna Moncrief on the mental health quite a critical blog I think of the systematic review so yeah give us your thoughts on this this main paper uh, focuses on young people from 18 to 24. I don't really see um, young people or kids, but I definitely see people about, 20, about 18, 18 to 24. So I really, you know, kind of encourage me to be, to feel, not to prescribe more antidepressant, but I feel to, to feel safe and, and to feel, okay, I'm doing something good and something uh, that potentially can help uh, my patients. However, in this uh, blog, um, Joanna Moncrief and Mark Horowitz really, you know, did a, a very critical analysis of, of this review and they suggest that um, 
um, the regional Lancet review, they put too much emphasis in one uh, paper that apparently, you know, really put fluoxetine and other antidepressants in a, in a very good light, and kind of dismiss. So even though they talk about some of the harms, you know, they talk about this topic very, in a very, very um, superficial way and fail to recognize that there might be some of the issues like activation syndrome or like some of the withdrawal effects might affect young people more than it will affect adults. So, uh, and also they mentioned a recent Cochrane review, which was published after the original Lancet review, in which they um, also, the, the authors of the Cochrane review also, you know, put um, the results of this uh, other meta-analysis in question and thinking, you know, and showing that in reality, antidepressants may be not that useful as we thought they were. Um, so it has really, you know, again, make me wonder. So how how could it be? So how effective would it be for me to treat anti uh, to prescribe antidepressants to some, uh, someone young when you know before trying to address other things, you know, before addressing their basic needs, before addressing any social issue or any physical health issue that could be impacting on on the on their mental health. And yes, so how important it is for to remember that even though we prescribe medication, always you know, aiming for the best or hoping that it will help our patients, they can be, sometimes they can, might even be not that effective and they may cause more harm than help. And uh, there are other things that we, can, that we can do to try to support them. Thank you, that's a really good topic and it's a good one to start with. And it's nice that it's um, one where there's a lot of uncertainty. And I think that's the important thing to say here is that mental health blogs don't often present a definite fixed answer. Now go away and do that. That will sort it out. Um, there's a huge amount of uncertainty uh, and we need to think about all the different components that we have within science to, to support our work. Um, so Becca, your example blog is um, looking at autism and it's looking at misdiagnosis or missed diagnosis of autism and the potential implications that can have for somebody who has autism that's undiagnosed or who is diagnosed with autism when they don't have it. Uh, so yeah, this is a really interesting paper led by Laura Fusapoli from Italy and blogged by uh, Rachel Simmons on mental health. Yeah, tell us why you chose this. So yeah, I chose this paper, I think it was interesting. So it followed kind of a sample of about 161 people, I think it was, um, from two Italian centres who had been referred for an ASD assessment and kind of looked at their kind of histories before that point and the diagnoses that they'd received before then, how long it had taken them to be referred and, and get a diagnosis. And then they were conducting the diagnoses using um you know detailed assessments and diagnostic assessment tools and agreeing as a team whether people met that diagnosis and they were just really reporting on kind of the the history and characteristics of that sample so what they found was that there was an average wait of 11 years for men and 12 years for women um, to receive an ASD assessment and those people had received multiple diagnoses in between those time points so there was a whole range of um, psychiatric diagnoses made um, and some that were particularly high were psychotic disorders and personality disorders. The authors discussed how that might be around some of the kind of overlapping symptoms. Um, so difficulties with kind of social insight um, and social isolation and psychosis um, and 
in personality disorders the kind of things like emotional dysregulation and self-harm those can be things that are seen in ASD as well um and really what they concluded was that ASD is still this quite poorly recognized and misdiagnosed condition um, that's often being diagnosed as other psychiatric conditions rather than a neurodevelopmental um, condition. Um, so I think it stuck out to me because in my clinical work, I've noticed that a lot of people I've worked with either have a diagnosis of ASD or are on the wait list to receive an assessment or there's a query about it. And it just made me think about how are we meeting the needs of those people in mental health teams? Are we kind of mislabeling what the difficulty is when there's this underlying neurodevelopmental condition that might have been affecting them all through their lives, um, but just manifests and presents as perhaps a psychiatric condition? And we know that people do wait such a long time to get a diagnosis and that the waiting lists to um, have an assessment in lots of areas of the country are really, really lengthy. So what can we be doing to support those people in mental health teams? Should we be offering, should we be screening people um, as routine for ASD? Should we be offering groups specific to ASD within our team or interventions? Um, and yeah, how, how often are people that we're working with, is there this kind of missing puzzle piece where perhaps, you know, there's this, difficulties with social communication and um, understanding the intentions of others that have been affecting them through their lives that might be a missing part of our formulation and our understanding of of what's going on for them right now. Um, I know that in my case I've definitely I think where there's been undiagnosed ASD actually potentially not adapted my interventions appropriately so I've used interventions that are quite abstract um, involve a kind of lot of imagery and mental imagery and kind of metaphor which perhaps wasn't appropriate for the people that I was working with and when actually they were diagnosed with ASD I could adapt it to make it this more kind of concrete and structured approach that worked better for them um so just the importance really of of recognizing ASD where it is present and thinking how do we support people and how do we ensure that we can reduce that that long waiting time between um the problem being identified and people getting a diagnosis really that's great that's a really nice honest reflection on how you think about the evidence and how you apply it to your own practice i think that's fantastic so moving on carrie ann you've chosen a really interesting review a uh, qualitative research paper about self-harm in young people um, and their sort of thoughts on how well they get cared for uh, in primary care so this is by Faraz Magal, um, who's a great GP, very interested in self-care, uh, self, self-harm rather, in young people. And uh, a young researcher from Oxford, Amelia Talbot, blogged it for us. So yeah, why did this paper stand out for you? I thought it was a really interesting paper to, um, to look at. And I think partly because uh, I don't think working in child and adolescent mental health I don't think there's enough research that asks young people about their experiences so this paper uh, was um, aimed to explore how young people who self-harm experience the care they were offered primarily by their GPs and it was about trying to get a better understanding of their their help-seeking behavior um, and it, it was it's a small study interviewed 13 young people 
Um, but I was really interested as well that they didn't define self-harm actually it was left to the young person to define it for themselves which I thought was quite interesting and it had three three main themes came out of it basically so one was about pathways into primary care uh, and that was very much often through encouragement of friends and family but through a plethora of services um, higher education third sector organizations and people were accessing primary care from so many different avenues um, and interestingly the private sector came up a lot and um, that the private sector was um, becoming a preference for people because the offer at GPs and in primary care was CBT and that wasn't really fitting for uh, some of the young people that wasn't really they didn't feel it was meeting their needs the second one was about barriers to care and they were talking about negative encounters with GPs um, and that was the themes were around GPs not exploring the cause of the behavior or linking back to what we were talking about before and being uh, offered uh, antidepressants too quickly um, uh, rather than exploring what other options there might be. Um, and also, I thought it was interesting, that they were, their fear of the unknown, they didn't know what would be the repercussions of telling their GP. Um, uh, and also, they weren't sure that what the GP would offer them in terms of support. So they were some of the um, barriers. And the final thing was then looking at facilitators. And it's no surprise, really, that the young people are saying that where they felt listened to um, uh, and there was a continuity of care, so seeing the same GP um, and they were offered the time, so which is really tricky, I guess, for GPs as well. Um, and there was shared decision making. They were the things that really made a difference for them. And as I said, I, I thought this was really clinically relevant because we just we as I said we don't ask people enough about their experience of mental health care provision and I think that's really important because it's not just the evidence it's not just the intervention that should be evidence-based but also the the way in which we deliver the interventions should be kind of evidence-based um, or should be grounded in evidence so um, I think building up a body of work of this nature could really inform how we deliver services um, and I, I just think as the other reason why it's really important is because so often people's first experience um, above talking about their mental health is via their GP. Primary care is often, you know, it's the first door that we, we go through. And so that interaction has real potential to shape and inform future health seeking behaviour. So if that experience can be, if we can get that experience right, kind of off the bat, then I think think it's really interesting you know that there's potential for you know long-term benefit there and I think there's a, a potential research study in that um and I think it was the the final thing that I kind of thought was quite interesting and Amelia highlighted it in her piece um and I mentioned it earlier about the number of people seeking private um help because they didn't think they could get the support they were offered and that just got me thinking as well about what about those people that aren't in the position to be able to afford that and sort of kind of the health inequalities that can emerge because of that. Um, so yeah, I was, I found it a really interesting piece and it started making me think about kind of, you know, what work we could be doing with, with GPs and what work we could be doing in schools to, um, to ensure that when people, when young people do go to their GP to access support, that that first experience is a, is a positive one. So that's it for this episode. 
You can check out the links and resources on the mental health page for this video. We're going to list all the things that we've mentioned, all the blogs, all the papers, all the initiatives and news stories. You can tweet us if you want to tell us what you think of this new show. The hashtag is ElfNuggets. Please do tell us what you think. Tell us what your favourite part was. What would you like to see more of? What do you think we should be covering in future shows? And if you like what you've seen today or what you've heard, please do subscribe on our YouTube channel. Follow us where you listen to your podcasts. If you want an alert next time, we publish an Elf Nuggets show.